0: Welcome to the latest episode of Star Cells, and God. This is the podcast where we explore the discoveries that are happening at the frontiers of science and discuss how these discoveries provide evidence for God's existence, God's character, and the reliability of the Scriptures, the Old and the New Testaments. My name is Fuzz Rana. I'm a biochemist and a Christian apologist, and I work for an organization called Reasons to Believe, Reasons to Believe is the organization that sponsors this podcast. If you want to know more about Reasons to Believe, please go to our website, www.reasons.org. Also, you can follow us on social media, rtb underscore official. I have the pleasure of being joined today via Zoom uh, by Dr. David Block, who is a world-renowned astronomer and astrophysicist. And we're going to be talking about the anthropic principle today, what is it, and how extensive does the anthropic principle uh, apply across the different disciplines of science. And uh, also, uh, before we get started with today's episode, I would encourage you to take a a little bit of time, go to, to our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe 1, and hit the subscribe button. There you can gain access to all kinds of great video content. Uh, including a number of videos that Dr. David Block recorded for Reasons to Believe. And then um, also make sure you use the notification button so that you are alerted the next time a new episode of Star Cells and God drops. Okay, well, without any further ado, I just want to say welcome uh, back to Star Cells and God, to, to David Block. You've been on this program several times, to my knowledge, and have yes. al- and uh, have again done some uh, great videos for us
1: because it's a great joy it's amazing here we are in winter in south africa and i'm reaching right into the heart of your studio uh in Kavina, and i trust that the listeners will enjoy we've put up a beautiful background of the Milky Way from the Southern Hemisphere just to give that little extra spicy touch.
0: (laughs) There we go. Thank you, David. Thank you. Uh, And and so today's topic is the anthropic principle. And I think people who are familiar with the anthropic principle think about this in the context of cosmology, which is rightfully Mm -hmm. so. But uh, I'm of the opinion, and there are some other scientists, that the anthropic principle actually manifest also in chemistry, biochemistry, and in biology as well. So we're going to talk about that today. Uh, but David, since you know, the anthropic principle is often attributed to Brandon Carter, uh, who was a, a, an atheist, ironically, uh, uh, an Austrian physicist, uh, maybe you could um, start us off by just talking a little bit about what is the anthropic principle and, and why do astronomers find it intriguing? Why do astronomers maybe find it troubling to some degree? And, and, and why are uh, people like you and, and I, who are scientists and Christians, find it so exciting?
1: Mm. Oh, That's just a lovely springboard out there, Buzz. You know, the whole universe, of course, just to put this in the framework of our listeners, comes forth, emanates forth from a very, very hot Big Bang phase, around 13.8 to 14 billion years ago. And the universe then starts expanding and expanding and getting bigger and bigger, and also cooler and cooler. And astronomers and cosmologists speak about the decoupling of the radiation era and the matter-dominated era. But now there's some strange phenomenon. In the laws of nature themselves, which, if they weren't precisely finely tuned, would not allow us to be talking uh, over Zoom tonight. Now, this is extraordinary. Why should there be a fine tuning of many of the uh, fundamental laws of nature? Why? And scientists such as Stephen Hawking came to the conclusion that if they weren't as finely tuned as they are, life on earth would not be possible. And so the anthropic principle, you can be an atheist and believe in the anthropic principle, but the anthropic principle essentially asserts that these fundamental parameters are very precisely tuned to allow man, in the generic sense, mankind, men and women, to exist anthropic principle anthropos and so the question really begs us as follows puzz you know the universe just i want to give one example of the anthropic principle if i may the universe is expanding and many years ago i remember i was a student and it was about probably in the 1970s and stephen hawking uh was really at his prime and he started to uh, investigate mathematically, you've got this universe expanding. Can it expand at an arbitrary rate to allow life, carbon-based DNA, to exist, or is the is expansion of the universe finely tuned? And Stephen ran through the math, and he came to an extraordinary finding, and that was that the expansion of the universe is finely tuned to one part in 10 to the 55. Now, just to give our listeners a feel for that, you know, fine-tuning one in 10 to the 200 means if you monkey with the second decimal place from a one to a two, the argument then becomes invalid and you wouldn't be here. But Stephen Hawking showed this. He looked at the expansion of the universe, Fuzz, and he said that, If the universe expanded ever so slightly too fast, galaxies wouldn't form. There wouldn't be time for little pods, sea pods, um, to form and to coalesce, to form galaxies. And also it worked out that if the universe expanded any slower than this critical rate, uh, the universe would collapse into a black hole. And again, no life would be possible. And then Stephen had a look at what the fine-tuning was, and it's one part in 10 to the 55. Now, that means if you monkey with a 55th decimal place, so that's point 0.000000, zero, 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 zero 54 zeros and a 1, if you change the 1 to a 4 in the 55th decimal place, Rana would not be here. Now, this is extraordinary. This is extraordinary because... The moment you see fine-tuning like that, you start asking the question, at least rational people do, is there a fine-tuner out there? It's just like the violin. If it's completely, beautifully, finely tuned, uh, there must be a musician who's fine-tuned the strings. And so that's just one example, the expansion of the universe, finely tuned in 1 to 10 to the 55. Why are the laws, why are so many of the laws of nature uh, focused focused on the fact that there should be a david block that there should be a fuzz rana that there should be a hugh ross that there should be a debbie jasko today and that really is the anthropic principle and what's very interesting is this fine-tuning fuzz has taken place it's not just over a day or two it's it's impregnated in the universe From the from the creation moment, and it's impregnated and it's been like that for 13.8 billion years time So, faith, I argue, at least on as a cosmological scale, faith, I argue, is not blind faith. faith is based on evidence. And I believe the anthropic principle, and we're going to delve into this more, but seeing you wanted me to just to pick off from a cosmological viewpoint, I think it's astonishing. I think it's extraordinary. I think it's absolutely miraculous that you and I should be alive. That is the essence of the anthropic principle. It is astonishing us.
0: You know, uh, I um, uh, wrote a book that was published a few years ago now called Fit for a Purpose. And the, the goal of that book was to make the case that the anthropic principle actually emanates, or not emanates, but manifests, I'm sorry, in chemistry, it also manifests in biochemistry as well. And in order to make that argument, uh, I, ha- I spent some time looking very carefully at how uh, people who were arguing for a cosmological anthropic principle made that argument. And through that process, really discovered something that's very subtle but incredibly important about the implications of the anthropic principle because, as you're pointing out, when you start talking about the fine-tuning of the constants of physics, that that suggests design, right? Fine-tuning and design are, in effect, synonymous. But what's interesting is that, as you're pointing out, the the process that Stephen Hawking went through to Mm. determine... The fine tuning of the expansion rate is really, in effect, a theoretical analysis, uh, yes. kind of a counterfactual analysis, where yes. you assume all the constants in nature are unchanged, and then you vary one constant, oh, right, wow. and you see what are the implications, uh, and 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 you describe some of those implications if the the you change very so ever so slightly the the fine tuning of the expansion rate. But really, in effect, what's going on here is that you're saying not only is there design, but that the universe has been structured in such a way for a purpose. And that purpose is the advent of life. In fact, the advent of human life, right? right? And so it's not just design, but there is a purpose. And that you would say that the universe, sometimes I've heard this expression, is fit for a purpose there's a fitness for purpose so it's not just design but there's purpose that's intertwined with focused.
1: it highly focused
0: right and so in a sense what the the criteria that is being used and the reason i bring this up is that's going to impact our discussion about the, is there an anthropic principle in biology is that you you, you know what is being established is that the the universe is precisely the way it needs to be for life to be possible, and yes, that, that there's like the principle right, is. and that there's not an alternative universe. And the way you show that is by doing this theoretical analysis. What happens if you vary the constants of physics? And as you point out, these constants of physics are endemic in the universe. They are they they are inherent in in the universe itself. So you've got these three criteria there's the 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 you might say that the 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 laws of nature the constants of nature are you know intertwined with the very universe itself that yes. there's a, that the universe is exactly the way it needs to be and that there's not alternatives and mm. so i use those three criteria for certain chemical systems for biochemical systems pointing out look biochemical systems are exactly the way they need to be for life to be possible there's mm. not alternatives, and that the, the nature of biochemical systems isn't being dictated by mm. evolutionary outcomes, but they are fundamentally prescribed by the laws of nature. So it's the fundamentally same... Fundamentally
1: prescribed. Yes.
0: yes. So when you look, for example, at, at at the three-dimensional structure of proteins, many evolutionary biologists would say, well, these are ju- these are just structures that natural selection produced, or that evolution stumbled upon. But in fact, those those structures are actually dictated by physical chemical constraints. They're prescribed by the laws of nature themselves. Mm -hmm. And and so they're not determined by natural selection, but by physical law. And they are precisely What? what they need to be. And you can show that there's no alternative that you can reasonably produce that would be a replacement for proteins there, because they have all these highly unusual anomalous but yet just-right properties. So, you know, it, the idea here is that, you know, it, that the anthropic principle, you know, is showing up in all kinds of other places as uh-huh. well.
1: You know, I remember a remark which uh, Richard Dawkins made. And Richard Dawkins said, life is explained. Life on earth is explained. Therefore, what, what need for a creator, in a sense? Now, the point is this, as you've just so beautifully pointed out, is that life is not explained. Life is not explained unless you understand the cosmological fine tunings, which I've alluded to, the expansion rate of the universe, the, the you know—the ratios of the electromagnetic force to the gravitational force, and the myriads of other parameters. But what you're pointing out, fans, too, is that not only in my world of the macrocosm, but in your world of the microcosm, you've got all these incredible fine tunings which... If they weren't precisely tuned the way they are, what you are saying is elemental biochemical structures in our bodies would not be the way they are and we would not have life and we wouldn't have a Zoom meeting.
0: That's right. That's right. And, um, you know, it, it's interesting because one of the, the common... Uh, Objections, and I think this actually comes from Doug Adams, who wrote the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. If I'm not mistaken, is the puddle analogy. Look, you know, you you you, if you were a water that was in a puddle, you would say, "Look, uh, the the puddle is, or the the hole is perfectly shaped for me as water to fit in it." Right. So right. you know that, and so are we not just simply saying the same thing? With the anthropic principle, I'm I know how I would respond, but I'm curious your your response to 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 that that uh, challenge to the theistic implications of the of the anthropic principle.
1: Is yes, no, I mean the, the whole point there is forget about the puddle. Why have we got an Earth? Why have we got a Milky Way galaxy? Why is why have we got a sun? And most importantly, why have we got carbon-based DNA life? Um, there are all these uh, plethora of arguments which come in and you need to look at the beginning. I mean, it's extraordinary, as I pointed out, that right at the beginning, billions of years ago, you've got this very, very hot Big Bang universe, which is expanding. It could have expanded at any rate. It could have expanded too fast, could have expanded too slow. A fine tuning of one to the 10 to the three is astonishing, but a fine tuning of one to the 10 to the 55 is so astonishing, Fuzz. Then I believe it's one of the reasons I believe the existence of the anthropic principle is one of the reasons why people are really pushing hard to expunge God from this universe and press towards the multiverse. Now, I know that there are many of my several of my colleagues are quite comfortable with the uh, multiverse, but other people uh, like Professor George Ellis um, are not comfortable with the, uh, with the multiverse at all because To me, there's a philosophical agenda here. People are, like Stephen Hawking, who's terribly uncomfortable with the fact that the anthropic principle exists. He didn't know about the anthropic principle in biochemistry, but he certainly knew about the anthropic principle in cosmology and in astrophysics. And when he looked at all of this, he had to, as a way, um, circumvent, expunge God from what he was seeing because he was coming... Yes, he was coming face to face with a fine tuning and therefore face to face with a fine tuner and he wanted nothing whatsoever to do with a fine tuner. And I believe that before you look at the little puddle and the water's just right, you need to look at this cosmic sweep. You must understand that this is a universe which has been expanding for billions of years. Stars have formed, stars have died, supernovae have formed, carbon has spewed out into um, the interstellar medium. This is astonishing that the universe should be so precisely tuned in terms of the fundamental laws of nature, both on the macrocosm and the microcosm, to allow you and me to be if these parameters were not met and with and held. You know, I love the, there's a verse in the scriptures, I think in Colossians, he upholds the universe by the power of his command. This is upholding the laws of nature um, on my scale and on your scale, the biochemical scale, for billions of years. I find that astonishing. So I'm not so astonished with the existence of the little pond. I'm astonished that there is a universe in which we can study the pond.
0: Well, you know, my response to that objection is inspired by one of my heroes, of one of my scientific heroes, Lawrence Henderson, who was a, in that day, he, today he would have been called a biochemist, but in then he was, that time he was called a, a, a physiologist and was at Harvard University. He played a critical role in understanding how buffering works in biological fluids. Uh, And um, uh, he was a a non-theist. He didn't seem to have any theistic leanings. But in his work on blood, he realized that there are that water, carbon dioxide, phosphates have these just right properties that if they didn't have those properties, life simply wouldn't be possible. And so he wrote a book published in 1912, I believe, called Fitness of of the Environment, which is an unbelievably prescient piece of work because he had all these ideas that turn out to still be valid today prior to even having a theory of chemical bonding. (laughs) So this is even before the discovery of quantum mechanics and then the production of kind of chemical bonding theory. So amazing piece of, of scientific work. But his point was, that if the environment wasn't exactly the way that it was the chemical environment there wouldn't life wouldn't be possible darwinian evolution was only possible because of the fitness of the environment so he was thoroughly a darwinian you know darwinian in his views but his point was you know this is and he, he, and even though he was a non-theist he said this is more than mere coincidence. There's something fishy going on here in terms of that fine tuning. So let's take that now and apply it to this puddle analogy. It's not that the puddle actually fills the hole and has the just right shape that matches the the contour of the hole. It's the fact that you live in a universe where holes are even possible, right? That's the point, right? Is that, you know, why is it that we live in a universe where there's concavity you know, as opposed to only, you know, a convex surface where puddles wouldn't even be possible at all. So, you know, Henderson, I think w- was again, uh, remarkable in terms of his thinking and really his, his work inspired my book fit for a purpose and in, in, in many, many ways. Um, you know, that, so anyway, uh, it's, quite,
1: it's, quite, it's, it's, you touching on a very fundamental theme here, Fuz, because the point is, it's not that there's the puddle, but it's that you've got carbon-based life. You and me, to observe the puddle, you know, everything is so astonishingly focused over periods of billions of years. It's as if an orchestra is playing and eventually... You know, as with uh, Handel's Messiah, you've got the the crescendo, the Hallelujah, the you know the building up yeah. of the cosmic theme, the cosmic orchestra. Isn't that what God has just done in the universe? Yeah. I'd love you to tell us more about um, you know the, the anthropic principle, but not in the realm of the large, fuzz, but in the realm of the small, because I'm sure I'm going to eat up. Every word you say.
0: <laughs> well, thank you. It's very kind of you, David. But, you know, uh, in, in in some respects, um, one of the, the chapters that didn't make it into the book because I had already far exceeded my word count, <laughs> that's the, the sad thing, that there were things that wound up on the cutting floor. Uh, but, you know, one of the chapters I wanted to write was was this chapter, which is, is there a anthropic principle in biology, because we've talked about physics, we've talked about very briefly chemistry and biochemistry. If people want to get some of those details, I'm going to do shameless self-promotion, get a copy of Fit for a Purpose, uh, where I kind of unpack that. But the question is, you know, is there an anthropic principle even in biology? In this leads us to an idea that you and I chatted about called process structuralism. Uh, and 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 let me you know set the context for this yes. by yes. by talking about how evolutionary biologists think of the evolutionary process. This is actually related to what we're talking about, though it may seem like a bit of a departure. And there's a a, a view and I think you should be able to see the slides, David called adaptationism. Uh-huh. And this when people think about the theory of evolution this is what they think about is that yes. natural selection has m- worked over time to produce organisms that are perfectly suited ideally fit for for their environment, right? Yes. You know that that the the the, 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 the biological traits, the right. physiological traits, right. anatomical right. features are all right. You know, are all um, perfectly adapted to th- to the environment, and they all serve a function contributing to the organism's survivability. That that idea is called adaptationism, and an extreme version of that emerged in the early uh, n- um, early 1900s, called pan-adaptationism, which basically says every feature of an organism has been fi- has been a Uh, shaped by natural selection to contribute to the organism's survivability. And so when many Christians who entertain the idea of God using evolution as a way to create, think about evolution, this is what they're thinking about, is this this idea where this evolutionary process produces these highly optimal, perfectly adapted organisms that are just right that are just right the problem is today it's probably no evolutionary biologist would hold to this view instead it's a it's a view uh, that's very different um, where in fact evolutionary biologists today are highly critical of any kind of adaptation where adaptationism where they argue this is in a sense akin to some form of creationism right and, and and so one of the people who has argued against this idea of evolution being adaptationist is a, a, a an evolutionary bio, a biologist by the name of Ford Doolittle. And I've got a quote from Doolittle that was published fairly recently in a paper that he uh, co-authored with a, a, a number of collaborators uh, describing um, uh describing their complaints about this growing recognition that many of the sequences in genomes turn out to be functional, right? This is one of the results of the ENCODE project is that instead of most of the human genome being non-functional garbage, the ENCODE project is finding that virtually every sequence in the genome is doing something at some time during the course of the cell cycle or during the course of growth and development of the organism. And so people that, that are like Doolittle, evolutionary biologists primarily, have challenged that conclusion, arguing that this is completely contrary to the nature of the evolutionary process. And this is what he says. Although biology is generally a wash. With adaptationist just-so stories, the situation in molecular biology and genomics is particularly bad. Various types of non-coding DNA are routinely interpreted as functional without adequate consideration of non-adaptationist alternative hypotheses. And and what's happening here is that evolutionary biologists are arguing that the evolutionary process is unguided— Uh, I have a a slide that shows this, is undirected, right, that it's historically contingent, meaning it's it's predicated on a sequence of chance events, and Uh that if you alter any one of those events ever so slightly, the trajectory Uh of evolution will be completely different. There's no Uh end goal in mind. There's no purpose. There's no direction to evolution. It's just this meandering process that creates happenstance outcomes and in and in fact the argument would be that new biological systems are inherently flawed systems that are co-opted from pre-existing systems and modified just cobbled together to produce new systems that everything is imperfect everything is inherently flawed as a biological system that that as an organism The imperfections that organism have are just slightly better than another organism's imperfections and so therefore it survives. But systems are not really adapted to the environment. They are just cobbled together. Where the argument is that most of the the biology of an organism is actually not shaped by natural selection. It's just a chance happenstance outcome. So, so this is how people think of the evolutionary process. Now, as a Christian who understands how biologists think about evolution, when somebody tells me God used evolution as a way to create, I'm deeply troubled by that idea because this is what you're saying. That does, Would God use a process like this to create? Now, if you hold to an adaptationist view, I'm sympathetic to thinking that God could use that type of evolution but this isn't what people think of as scientists when they're talking about evolution and in fact the, the late Stephen Jay Gould uh... Wrote a, a famous paper with another biologist at Harvard, Richard Lewenton, uh, called the, the Spandrels of San Marco and the Panglossian Paradigm, a critique of the Adaptionist Program. And, and what he <clears throat> they use as a metaphor is the what are called the, the um, Spandrels of San Marco, which is a, a cathedral, where they argue that there are these architectural features that are so elegant that are part of this San Marco Cathedral, but that they actually were not intentionally designed by the architect, but Mm -hmm. rather they just simply were a result of the architectural design. They were a byproduct, and that an uninitiated person would look at that thinking, oh, this has been planned, this has been designed, where in fact it hasn't been. Uh, what's and so they argue that this is the way we should really think about biological features. They haven't been designed; they are just these happenstance features. They are evolutionary spandrels. Uh, so this uh-huh. is what he they they write in this uh, in a uh, in a paper published in the the Proceedings of the Royal Society uh, journal, the B journal. They say the spandrels of St Mark's Basilica are so elaborate harmonious and purposeful that we are tempted to view it as a starting point of any analysis as the cause in some sense of the surrounding architecture. The spandrels themselves are an architectural constraint that provide a space in which the mosaicists worked. Mm. It was just happenstance. And so the point here is that even though you, David, see the universe as having this elegant purpose, this teleology Right. Even though I see chemistry, at least the chemistry that supports living systems in those terms, even though I see biochemical systems in those terms, most biologists say that biology lacks purpose. It lacks any teleology whatsoever. It's in fact, most biologists are strictly speaking, anti teleological. That you can believe anything you want about biology as long as you believe it doesn't have a purpose. That there's no purpose, not only in living systems, but no purpose undergirding the history of life or the mechanism that produced life. That's the the mindset. And so, again, you know, is this really something that Christians want to hitch their wake into when they say that they are theistic evolutionists, right? Uh, and, and so, um, you know, so... So this is kind of the, the the situation that we're in in contemporary biology. So the idea here to claim that the, the human genome is mostly functional, the, the argument goes is to sim- completely miss the point that it's it, it might appear to be functional, but really it's not. These are just things yeah. that that evolution right. happened upon, right? Uh, and And maybe they're're they're, they're contributing uh, to some kind of they're serving some kind of function, but they really are not what, they're really not intentional designs of any sort.
1: Technology, yep.
0: Exactly. Now, in light of this, there's a very interesting phenomena that drives evolutionary biologists nuts, and it's called convergence. And, and the idea here is that it looks, when we look at um, biological systems across the board, mm-hmm whether they are at a molecular level, a cellular level, whether we're looking at anatomical or physiological systems, behavioral processes in organisms, there appears as if certain designs emerge independently multiple times. They emerge independently time and time and time again.
1: That is a convergence.
0: Yeah, this is called convergence. Now, this is not what you would expect, because if you talk about... An evolutionary process that is shaped by historical contingency, the net effect is that the outcome is unpredictable, and we should never hit upon the same outcome uh, more than once.
1: Exactly random, right? Right.
0: Yeah. It, or if it happens, it's going to happen on rare occasion. But lo and behold, the 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 what really is the 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 quality that shapes the biological realm seems to be this this idea of convergence where evolution is apparently driven to the same endpoint time and time again. And in fact, there are two great books that I would highly recommend to people if they're interested in this. One is called Convergent Evolution by George McGee, which just catalogs an endless number of examples of convergence. The other one is a book called Life Solution by Simon Conway Morris, Who happens to be a theist, very prominent evolutionary biologist. In fact, He's
1: at Cambridge. Exactly,
0: he is, exactly. And in this book, he talks about convergence, but uh, unlike McGee, he goes one step further where he says there's something that convergence is telling us about the evolutionary process. It's not historically contingent. And in fact, he argues there appears as if there are some kind of laws of nature that are dictating or constraining the outcomes of the evolutionary process. And this idea is called process structuralism, where it's not natural selection or an unguided evolutionary process that's determining evolutionary outcomes. There's something in the laws of nature that are driving things to a particular endpoint time and time and time again. And That's fascinating. Fascinating. and and so in and, and, and part of uh, Conway Morris's argument is that biological systems are actually optimal systems. They are not mm-hmm. suboptimal systems. So you've got this these laws of nature that are taking, the evolutionary process in a in in predetermined directions, and those directions are highly optimal outcomes that give organisms precisely the properties that they need to survive. Right? Doesn't that sound very familiar? Starting
1: to sound like the cosmology to me. Yes.
0: Right. And so, what I find to be intriguing is this: that you know, from my perspective, when I look at convergence, as someone who isn't, doesn't subscribe to theistic evolution, I recognize that convergence is what you would expect in designed systems. I mm-hmm. used to work before my time at, at uh, RTB for a Fortune 500 company in research and development, and we had a mantra called search and reapply, that don't invent new technologies, take existing technologies we already own, and use. look to see how you can reuse them in new products. And and so the idea is that efficient and clever designers don't invent new things. They use existing designs over and over again. And and so when I see convergence, I see design. But the interesting thing is that whether you hold to a creationist idea approach or you hold to some kind of evolutionary approach, if evolution is actually, as Simon Conway Morris describes it, it doesn't matter regard how you think God did it, whether through evolution or through intervention. It's still evidence that it's there not is a. It, it's that's not right. Theory. Exactly. There's a mind. There's a mind behind it, and, and so this idea is called process structuralism. And just to, to you know to formally describe it here. Um, I just have a couple of quick slides. One is that, again, evolution is guided by physical forces which shape the development of an organism. These forces supersede natural selection altogether. Uh, Mm. And that um, the basic forms in the natural world are sometimes called types uh, and that they are, again, certain structures that the laws of physics will permit, whereas other options are excluded because the laws of physics won't support those structures and those structures uh, happen to be precisely, uh, precisely what you need for life to be possible. In other words, biological designs are pre-sculpted by the laws of nature and that Uh they refer to this as the laws of form, right? That, and Conway Morris argues, that we've yet to discover what these laws of form are, but that that evolution is actually this law-like process that is, again, going towards these predetermined outcomes. It's fascinating. Right, it's and, and, and what I'm beginning to see is that even when it comes to chemical evolution and prebiotic chemistry, that it almost looks like there may be a type of process structuralism in chemical evolution as well, so once I was opened up to this idea, I'm now beginning to see, the, the, you know, support for this idea everywhere I look. Right? It was just like uh, an, my eyes were opened. You know, the the mud clods were removed from my eyes, to use a biblical yes. analogy, and suddenly, suddenly, I'm seeing things that scream of teleology. And what's fascinating to me is Simon Conway Morris is at the vanguard, but I'm seeing more and more young biologists who are ascribing to this idea who are theists. And so we literally could be seeing, David, a a revolution in how we think about the evolutionary process that is taking us... it's
1: teleological. It's teleological. That's
0: right. That's right. So now this is what is emerging, is that we've got this coherent picture of the universe, right, where it's not just fine-tuning in the laws of physics, where everything else is left up to chance, in happenstance, in contingency. No, we've got a universe where it's the laws of physics, the laws of chemistry, the, 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 the nature of biochemistry, the nature of biology, that are all pointing towards this idea that there is purpose and the purpose of the universe is the advent of not only life, but highly specific forms of life that are critical for ecosystems that are critical to maintain the history of life on earth and ultimately are really pointing to the advent of humanity who is then now capable of discovering (laughs) the fine tuning of every feature of, of nature. It's That's extraordinary.
1: That's extraordinary. Going down from the very, very big to the very, very small. But I'd like to add one point here, if I may, and that is when I was invited to speak at the, in the UK recently. I visited the home of Charles Darwin, and you've repeated this over and over so eloquently: natural selection. But you cannot have natural selection in a supercharged, supernatural, designed universe. It, it it's a dichotomy. You can't have the one, Why is there cosmos at all? Why is there cosmos to allow uh, you know biochemistry to take place and all the rest? And so, just as we're talking, I think the whole key theme that's coming through over and over again for us is teleology, purpose, focus, teleology. And it's extraordinary what you're describing, especially the work of Conway Morris and others.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you know, I still probably would place myself in the creationist ID camp. But boy, this idea of process structuralism is very, very uh, alluring. (laughs) It's very interesting. And I see people that ascribe to process structuralism as really allies, because now the, the, the difference that we have would be modes of divine action, not the fact that there was divine action to begin with.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's actually it's actually a beautiful harmony because we we've, we've seen the universe impregnated with all these fine tunings in the fundamental laws of nature but i find it absolutely riveting to find this happening in the world of biochemistry and in on the world of uh, the cellular structure. and so on. The, the the whole idea which you've so beautifully put forth of um, you know convergence this this is how i see it don't you Fuzz? that there's a purpose everywhere you look the universe is expecting the grand crescendo of Imago Day created in his images. You and I would understand it. It's like the grand crescendo of this divine plan. Uh, you know, Tippler, Barrow, and Tipler wrote that wonderful book on the anthropic principle, but they missed the key point, I believe, in that they they didn't scratch the mind of the fine tuner. They stopped at fine tuning. But now one can one almost gets cornered by everything that you're saying, because it's teleology on a completely different, uh, not only cosmological level, but on a completely different scale, you know, to um, galaxies and planets and stars, but to men and women, uh, it it starts making sense why C.S. Lewis wrote the book, for example, The Weight of Glory. Why would human beings be endowed as, you know, Jesus prayed, oh, Father, you know, you know, may your glory rest upon them. You know, why would he say this? Because we are not accidents about to happen. We are not just random, made up of random molecules, uh, just, you know, naturally selecting themselves. But there's design, there's Forethought, but also again, a fuzz, this forethought has happened over billions of years initially.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's absolutely remarkable. And, and so, to me, going back to you know the point you made at the very beginning of this program, you know, the the universe has a beginning, right? And and so right. there there must be a a transcendent cause to that beginning. But right. now, when we see design and we see purpose, it really says that this cause is a personality or a super personality it's not an an impersonal force it, mm-hmm. that is the only the only way you can explain design and purpose is if there is a designer who has a purpose for his designs
1: and that would therefore rule out um, sort of a sort of a theistic evolutionistic framework where God just you know, in a sense, is allowing things to happen in an indirected way. I see I see it completely differently, and I'm sure exactly as you do too, is that it's not just um theistic evolution, which this is something extraordinary. The impregnation not only of the universe, but of mankind in the universe, the the, the convergence, convergence of all these laws. Uh, puts me totally at variance with just the sort of the very muddled idea of theistic evolution. Would you agree with me, first?
0: I I would. I would. And, you know, there's a lot of people who hold to theistic evolution who argue that, you know, we we can't really even see God at work through this process. God is hidden in the process where maybe— He's directing it at the level of quantum indeterminacy, but it, it would be unknown to us. And yet right. when I look at Scripture, it seems to me that that it's telling us that God has made himself clearly known <laughs> through the creation. And so so w- when I look at something like process structuralism, this is not your grandfather's evolution, <laughs> right? Because there, if if you say, well, God is indeed, you know, responsible for the evolutionary outcomes that that he did indeed use evolution to to create it's very clear in the nature of the process being proposed by process structuralists that god is evident that there is purpose that 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 it's not hidden from view but it's it's literally there in front of us for us to see
1: Mm -hmm. i think that you know that highlights this point so clearly in that in a theistic evolutionistic, God might be there, God might not be there. It's just far too nebulous. That's not what the cosmological anthropic principle teaches me anyway. It says, God, it's shouting forth. The heavens declare the glory of God. It's shouting forth. And what you are describing so beautifully with process structuralism is that it's shouting forth. God is not... It's not Pascal, you know, Pascal spoke about possibly a hidden God, you know, the hidden God. Here you are actually seeing, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you're seeing the handiwork of God, uh, the handiwork of God very much at work, so much to the extent that we can read in Genesis, and God made man. In his own image. In other words, it's teleology, its purpose, its focus. It's a crescendo. It's convergence.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and if if indeed you know there is a creator behind everything, we would expect the universe to coherently proclaim the same message, regardless of where we look. And that's exactly what is beginning to emerge. You know, so. Um, I, I see process structuralism, again, as this intriguing idea. It's I think it's a bridge between kind of uh, those who would be theistic evolutionists and kind of an old earth creationist position. Uh, but it's a very, I think, a very productive area to pursue because this is a place where if it turns out that process structuralists are, are correct, I think it would be something to celebrate by all means.
1: And do you find more and more molecular biologists, for example, embracing process structuralism? I, I'm
0: seeing I'm seeing a I don't know if I would say it was it's a majority, but I' it's a growing minority who are, right. who, who, are who are recognizing that there seems to be something eerie <laughs> in the, in the process.
1: Well, that reminds me of the work of Galileo, doesn't it? Is it started very small amongst the minority, but boy, Copernicus and then Galileo and so forth, and it sprung forth to the majority. And I believe you cannot look at the glorious cosmos in which Fuzz and Dave find themselves in without uh, in breathing, you know, the fine tuner who has fine-tuned all these laws, on both the gargantuan cosmological and then the molecular scales. I think it leads to a convergence of thought here uh, of the Logos, is that when Jesus becomes flesh and tabernacles amongst us, he's the result, too, of the fine-tuning which he's made with his Father mm. and with the Holy Spirit. He's a result. The Logos is not just random uh, natural selection and so on, God forbid that, The the, the, the Logos is entering a world which has been incredibly finely tuned by him for that very purpose, that he could enter the universe as a self-aware human being, fully God and being fully man. It's that, that, That's really extraordinary, us, is that he's entering his own finely tuned universe in a very eminent way, not only in a transcendent way.
0: Yeah, wow, you know, that, I think that probably is the best place to, to bring this podcast to a close, because I don't know that anybody could top that incredibly poetic and, and beautiful description of, of the Incarnation and the the yeah the, 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 the amazing this declaration of love that God would have, that he would enter into this creation for our sake.
1: Well, Fuzz, well, isn't it awesome?
0: To serve Him like this. Yeah. Well, David, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. This has been, for me, a lot of fun. And I hope for those people who've watched this episode, this has been a lot of fun as well. Um, So I'm going to go ahead and uh, just remind all of you that uh, who are watching, make sure that you check out our website, reasons.org. Make sure that you... uh, Follow us on social media, rtb underscore official. Go to our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe, and make sure you subscribe. Use the notification button. Also, you can subscribe to Star Cells and God through a number of different podcast services. So make sure you take advantage of that as well. And until next time, I just want to leave you with this thought. The more that we know about science, the more we have reasons to believe.